You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Did God command the Israelites to kill children? And how do we make sense of other difficult passages in Scripture? Welcome, everyone, to Polycarp's Paradigm. I'm with my friend, Dr. Mark Gieschek from the Augustine Institute. Welcome, Mark, to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be with you, Eric. Yeah, well, if you don't mind, just introduce yourself to our listeners and, and a little bit of your background and who you are and what you do. <laughs> sure. So uh, I teach uh, scripture courses at a graduate institution called the Augustine Institute in Denver, Colorado. I've been doing that for 10 years. And um, uh, my specialty is Old Testament. So I wrote my dissertation at Catholic University of America on Song of Songs. But I've also taught a lot of New Testament courses as well. So I'm, I'm interested in both. Um, right now, I'm working very hard on a commentary on the Book of Wisdom. Um, and I've also been pretty uh, associated with the uh, Augustine Institute's publication of the English Standard Version Catholic Edition. Uh, so I wrote a book on that, which hopefully will be coming out relatively soon. Um, so I'm, I have to say, I'm really excited about this. We just got a shipment of new Bibles, right? So I've got my, yes. my hard back here, uh, which I think is very beautiful. And I think people are going to really like them. And I've got the leather, the paperback. And uh, so that's really exciting to be part of that. Um, yes. uh, married, have children. Uh, I don't know. What else do you want to know? I want to know everything. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, when can I get my hands on a on an ESV Bible that's hard copy like that? Yeah, you can order them right now uh, on Catholic.market. So that's okay. our like our e-commerce website. So the um, my favorite is the black leather, right? Okay, so comes in a cool box. Yeah, and then you can like open the box, and there's like a little letter that comes with it from Dr. Gray, our president. Wow, cool. and it. It's just a, it's a, you know, it's a real thin Bible. It's got yes. that gold leaf, you know, stuff on the outside and it's got the um, bookmarks and feels really nice in your hand. Anyway, wow. I'm excited about them. I, I've been hoping for a Bible like this and now I've got one, you know, it's great. <laughs> so two things from your introduction that I just want to mention. I, yeah. I grew up Protestant and grew up loving the ESV. And when I became Catholic, I was a little frustrated at some of the Bible translations. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah. And secondly, I didn't have one of the books, um, seven books in my Bible. I didn't have right. the book of wisdom, which you're working on a commentary for, yeah. which was very profound for me to read that. Cause it was like very clearly scripture to me. It was just like, wow, there's fulfilled yeah. prophecies. I was seeing, I was blown away by the book of wisdom. So even if you're Protestant out there, definitely recommend reading the book of wisdom and the other books. And that'd be great. Um, well, awesome, Mark. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about one of your uh, books that you released, Light on the Dark Passages of Scripture. Um, yeah. And we're just going to go for it. We're going to go for some hard questions here. And I'm sure a lot of people, you know, they they maybe tend to neglect the Old Testament, which is your specialty. And they're like, well, why can't we just have the New Testament? You know, Jesus seems yeah. so different than the Old Testament God, right? Like, what is up with that? And you know, the Old Testament talks about God killing the firstborn of the Egyptians, commanding the Israelites to kill men, women, and children. Like, what is going on? And so, um, yeah. 
and so I'm excited to unpack that with you. And, and it's cool to, to, to visit with a Catholic biblical scholar who's so deep in, in the Bible. And uh, first of all, though, what, what kind of started your motivation just personally in, in your love for the scriptures? And why are you so passionate about the scriptures just in general before you get going? Yeah, I think, um, you know, in the environment that I grew up in, you know, surrounded by, you know, devout parents and a lot of adults who really loved the Lord and loved scripture and, you know, uh, participated in Bible studies and so forth. There really was after Vatican II, like a real revival in reading scripture in the Catholic world, particularly in the United States, I think. And, um, you know, the New American Bible was released in 1970. And I think that a lot of Catholics uh, got interested in scripture after the Second Vatican Council. And I think I benefited from that. Um, and uh, I still have the uh, the big old Jerusalem Bible, you know, black leather bound edition that my grandfather would carry with him everywhere he went in his briefcase. It's huge, you know, and heavy, wow. you know, and he just carried it everywhere. It's great. Um, and I think that... Um, uh, that I grew up in an environment that really loves scripture and, uh, and, you know, that just sort of like, it was sort of like one thing led to another, you know, that I found myself studying scripture in high school, you know, attending Bible studies and so forth. Uh, and then I ended up majoring in philosophy and theology at Ave Maria college. Um, and you know, there's nothing like studying theology to stoke your love for scripture even more. So, uh, it's, you know, it's just been a wonderful journey, you know, and, and I, I feel like, um, for many Catholic scripture is kind of like an undiscovered country, you know, it's like, um, it is, they're, they're kind of intrigued or interested, but don't really know how to get in the door. Uh, yeah. and so I love just sort of inviting people in the door, you know, and just say, you know, yes. like, come, come take a look, uh, because there's so much here that is not just interesting, right? Um, but it really can be food for one's soul, you know? And I think that a, a lot of Catholics, you know, they have a kind of uh, uncertain relationship with the Bible and they're not sure what to do with it exactly. Mm. Or they feel like if they encounter it too much, they might, um, I don't know, end up becoming Protestant or something. <laughs> uh, when in fact, right, the word of God is meant to invite us into communion with divine life, right? So there's a way in which bringing your Bible to the adoration chapel is the most logical thing to do, you know, uh, wow. and reading scripture with, with the Lord and with the church. It's really, it's really important. And it's a source of intellectual inspiration, but also spiritual life. Mm -hmm. um, so I've, I've had the privilege of teaching at the Augustine Institute, but also in Denver, there's this uh, thing that the archdiocese runs called the Denver Catholic biblical school, which I think is the largest formal Catholic Bible study program in the country. It has about 2,000 people in it at any given time. And uh, that's really fun to teach for, right? Because I get to go into Catholic parishes and just talk about scripture uh, and invite people to study it with me. And um, and people just love it, right? They just drink deeply and, you know, they bring their Bibles and highlight and take notes and, uh, you know, and wonderful results come from that. And why is it that it's so difficult to interpret the Bible and and one thing that I think of is just, well, so many different genres and so many different yeah. books. It's not just sure. one book. I mean, it is one book because it's got all God inspired and it's God's word in human language, right? And and so, yeah, why is it so difficult? And, and why are some of the passages that we're going to go over, why are they so hard to interpret? 
Yeah, I mean, with the Bible, it's important to remember that we're reading really ancient literature. You know, you, you can't just pick up Homer and expect to understand everything fully on the first read through, right? Uh, you know, you often need notes or commentaries or a teacher or other helps for it all to kind of come together and make sense. And well, I think with scripture, there's a way in which we can pick it up and read it and uh, get some benefit right away, especially from reading the more spiritual passages like the Psalms or the Gospels or Proverbs. Um, to understand it more fully, we do have to do a little bit of study uh, because it it's very distant from our culture, you know, whether it be in terms of the language, uh, the cultural practices, the political system, the way that people thought about God, the way that religion worked in the ancient world. Lots of things are quite different. And so it's kind of like, you know, going into a foreign country or something, you know, it, it, not everything makes sense when you first get there, when you first arrive. But the, the more you spend time there and you start learning, you know, a few phrases and you start to pick things up and you start to understand the way people do business and it starts to make sense. And I think this is the same with scripture, right? The more that we hang out in scripture uh, and read about it and study, the more it comes together. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting to point out how, let's say how different it is than the Quran where sure. the Quran is, you know, God dictating like word for word, whereas the scripture is very, it's divinely inspired, but it's by human authors. And so there's right. that human context that you're mentioning, like cultural context that needs to be taken account of. So how does that work? Like, what do we mean by divinely inspired and how does that work with the human authors? Cause I'm sure that's going to come into play here as we talk about these passages. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to remember the Bible is not a book that fell from heaven. Right. Um, I mean, we might think of the 10 commandments as written with the finger of God on, on Moses's tablets. Right. But the Bible's a little bit different, right? It's uh, it, it doesn't just drop out of heaven. We've got a variety of authors uh, writing in a variety of languages at a variety of times and even a variety of places. Uh, and, uh, and they're all kind of bound together as one book that's inspired by God. So we believe, of course, that all of Scripture is inspired by God uh, and that everything in Scripture is not just written by the human author, but it's really written by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's, that's a really important claim, but then how that claim cashes out in all the individual instances can be pretty complicated, right? With a doctrinal teaching text like the Book of Romans, it's relatively straightforward. Like, in what way is the Song of Songs authoritative for Christian life? Like, what does that even mean for it to be inerrant, right? It's a little hard to kind of put your finger on uh, what that means in the case of Song of Songs or some of these other books that are more abstract or poetic. Um, but, you know, all of the books of Scripture are written for us, right? They're all written uh, by God, right, with the human authors for us. And God doesn't use the human authors like a typewriter, right? They're not like robots or something that just sort mm. of pen down, you know, the exact words that he's dictated to them. Uh, rather, the human authors, you know, function with all of their capacities, knowledge, personalities, experiences as true authors of the sacred texts, but uh, they're operating with the Holy Spirit. So that's why, you know, some of the books read really differently than others, right? Isaiah is very different than Galatians or something. And the book of wisdom is very different than Genesis, you know, and, and that's okay, right? You have different types of literature, different types of authors over a long period of time writing. And so, you know, we have to be quite careful when we interpret scripture in an authoritative manner, right? That we're, 
being attentive to the particularities of each individual author. It's interesting too, how it does span so many thousands of years, different cultures, different people. And, and, and yet, uh, and so people need to take into that context, like the meta narrative of scripture, like the big overarching, like what is God trying to say in the whole, but then also zooming into the certain parts is really important. And so, um, all right, well, let's zoom into some of those like difficult passages. Sure. And, uh, I'll start with a pretty challenging one for you, but you know, it's in your book and if people want to go more in depth, they can definitely get your book and I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, Psalm 137 nine says, happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So how do we interpret that? Cause it seems to be saying that happy is the person who dashes the little kids in Babylon against a rock. <laughs> uh, Yes, please help us, doctor. Yeah, C.S. Lewis had a really strong reaction to this verse. You know, uh, I think he called it something like the most repugnant verse in all of scripture or something like this. Um, But honestly, if you read the whole psalm, I don't know why people have such a big problem with it. So let me explain, right? It begins, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept wept when we remembered Zion, right? So it's, it's a psalm. Uh, of the exiles, right? The Jewish exiles who've been kicked out of Jerusalem, kicked out of Judah. They've been dragged off into exile in Babylon, and they're there weeping in Babylon, wishing they could go back home uh, to Judah. And uh, during the the, uh, the the psalm, the psalmist will address himself to the city of Babylon as if the city were a person, right? So he says in verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Uh, and then it says, right, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. So this is a really common thing to do in scripture, right, to refer to a city as a kind of symbolic woman, right? So we later on we hear about daughter Zion, for example, right? Or Israel will be represented as a woman in uh, the book of Ezekiel. Wisdom herself is represented as a as a woman in uh, the book of Proverbs and, of course, in the book of Wisdom, which I'm working on. So this is not uncommon. Um, but I think what people miss about the metaphor is very simple, right? When you address a city as a person, as a symbolic person, then her children would be the inhabitants of the city. Okay. Right? So when he says, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes against dashes them against the rock, right? He's sort of fantasizing about the future destruction of the city of Babylon, right? Where, and of course, we know that the Babylonians do get taken over eventually uh, by the Persians, right? And the Persians come in and they do destroy the city, right? And they do kill a lot of people. So he's sort of like thinking like, wouldn't it be great if my enemies were destroyed? Um, and... You know, in now you're thinking, well, okay, but what about the children, right? Is it talking about children? Mm, okay, maybe, right? But we're still in the realm of kind of like fiction, fictive fantasy land where he's like dreaming about the destruction of Babylon. Um, and so I think that, and you know, if you look at what the Bible has to say about the Persians uh, and about their leader, Cyrus, mm. in uh, Isaiah 45, Cyrus is actually referred to as the Messiah. So let me just wow. let me go find that. So at the very end of Isaiah 44, uh, 
the prophets talking about Cyrus. He says, he's speaking and, and in, the, in the voice of God, right? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. The next verse in chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, that is the Messiah, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Right? So they really view King Cyrus of the Persians as like a hero, right? As, as somebody anointed by God to destroy the Babylonians. Not only that, but to let the Jews go back to the Holy Land and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem mm. and to rebuild the temple. So they regard Cyrus as a great ally. So anyway, I think it's important to kind of get that historical background to make sense of what's going on in Psalm 137, right? He's dreaming about the day when he'll be released from exile, when he'll be released from slavery to the Babylonians, and someone will come in and destroy them like they destroyed Jerusalem. So that would be my way of kind of getting my head around what's going on in Psalm yes. 137. Well, all right. You passed the first test, Dr. G. But uh, <laughs> we got we got another test here coming. So the same God, you know, Jesus in the New Testament said, let the children come to me, right? And he lo- he said to them belongs the kingdom of God. And he absolutely loved children. Yeah. Um, and in the Old Testament, though, God in 1 Samuel 15, 3, commands the Israelites, says, go, now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that she all that they have, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So knowing the intrinsic value of every human life, you know, obviously the Catholic Church, very pro-life from conception to natural death, we're defending human life. How do we make sense of this order of God to kill even children? Yeah. Well, you had to go pick the most difficult one, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. uh, Yeah, I mean, this is a complicated problem because of everything you pointed out, right? We know that God is just, we know that he's merciful, we know that uh, he loves us, we know that he's pro-life, so to speak, right? We know that that God doesn't um, mandate wanton killing. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill, right? So how do we make sense of this bizarre commandment? And it's a commandment that uh, in some sense is precedent, but 1 Samuel 15 is like the most extreme example. So if you go back to Deuteronomy 20, God talks about kicking the Canaanites out of the land, right? And uh, mandates that they be uh, driven out and or slaughtered if they're not driven out. Um, and so, I, I mean, I think 1 Samuel 15 is the most complicated because it's there that we get very specific vocabulary about children, right? In earlier examples, it's sort of like, yeah, kill everybody and everything, but it's not quite as crystal clear that children are included in that command. Um, but you, as you read the passage, right, you also notice that there are also camels and donkeys and other things included as well. So I've got to do a little bit of backstory for this all to make sense. Yes. And I think that the main principle is really simple, right? It's that um, God is the Lord of life and death, and death is not the end of the story. I'll return to those ideas in a second. Okay, so what's wrong with Amalek? We find Amalek really early on in the book of Exodus opposing the people of Israel's journey through the wilderness, opposing their entry into the promised land. So they're, they're considered to be like the kind of ancestral foes of God's promises to his people. 
which is why they're kind of singled out for particular punishment at this point in 1 Samuel 15. And uh, so that's one aspect of it, right? There's this other aspect, which is God has already commanded the people of God to go in and conquer the Holy Land, which we see throughout the book of Joshua. They never really quite finish the job, right? And the, the outstanding Amalekites are part of the problem, right? That they've never really quite finished the job of the conquest. So this is a kind of cleanup operation. Okay. But then you're thinking, well, okay, yeah, okay, fine. I, I don't really care about the history. What about the, the children? And this is where we have to kind of, again, kind of put on our ancient historian hats and think about what life was like and what warfare was like thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago, they didn't have things like the UN or the Red Cross or a police force or a lot of the things we kind of take for granted nowadays. Mm. Uh, they didn't have a criminal justice system like we do. They didn't have um, so many things that, that we think of. So if there was going to be a war, right, uh, there would be a lot of refugees from that war that would have no support. So it wasn't atypical, right, to, uh, to, to basically wipe out all of the people found in a given town or city, regardless of whether they could be classified in our terms as combatants or non-combatants. We have to be a little bit careful, though, because when we look at actual examples from the book of Joshua, like Jericho or I, we don't really find all that many non-combatants hanging around. A handful, right? But it seems like most of the people that we're encountering in those places are soldiers or government officials, mm-hmm. um, or people like Rahab, a prostitute, right? Not all that surprising to be found with a bunch of soldiers. Um, so so this, the language that we're getting there in 1 Samuel 15 is uh, comprehensive, right? They're supposed to kill all of the people and all of the animals, right? Uh, they're supposed to kill everything that they find in that place, putting it to the ban, which is kind of uh, shorthand for saying, they're kind of dedicating it to God, right? They're, they're killing all of these people and animals as uh, and sort of handing them over to God. But they were thinking, okay, but what about the children? <laughs> right? I still don't like that, right? Why are their children included in this? Well, so part of it is sociological, right? They don't have a refugee system to handle orphans and widows and other people who might be left over from war. Um, and... In the end, right, so again, we don't know how many people they actually killed. There aren't uh, records of them actually killing children. So this is a command, but we don't actually see it fulfilled in specific. Um, But if they did, right, then what are we to make of that? And I think it comes back to those principles I laid down at the beginning, right? As Christians, we believe that death is not the end of the story. So while we might regard someone's death as tragic or early or an accident or whatever, in the end, we really believe that something happens after death, that there's hope after death, and that death is not the end of the story, right? So even if, right, there were children who fell victim to wars of the Israelites in the Old Testament, we don't lose hope for them, right? We actually can still hold out hope that even after death, they would see the face of God. And so while we might regard their deaths as tragic or morally complicated or whatever else, in the end, we believe that they're 
could be some sort of redemption for them. Um, and then it's like, well, it still seems unfair to me. Okay, but think about all death, right? Think about people that you know who have died seemingly before their time. Mm-hmm. We could say the same thing about all of those people, right? So if you're thinking of children who die for, from cancer or teenagers who die in bike accidents or, I don't know, just people that bad things happen to, all of those instances we could regard as unfair, right? And so we have to have some sort of explanation for why those things can happen. If God is all powerful and all good, why does he allow these terrible things to happen? And I think from, uh, uh, from a kind of ultimate perspective, we can agree with St. Thomas Aquinas that God is Lord of life and death. Right? And so if he chooses to withdraw my life at any given point, I can't really protest, right? It really belongs to his authority, his prerogative as God to do that. Um, in the same way that he sustains my life and being, and I'm grateful for that, right? But he could, he could withdraw that at any moment. And I can't really sort of raise a fist and complaint about that because I, I really exist because of him. So while that might not be a totally satisfying, like now it all makes sense kind of answer, I do think it's the right, um, but I have a feeling we'll still be kind of puzzling over these things, even as we sort of trip our way toward glory. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why we can hope, and this is an interesting verse, I think, from the New Testament, is that uh, it says, Jesus, um, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is from 1 Peter chapter 3 and then chapter 4. Um, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey when God's patience weighed in the days of Noah. And then later on chapter four, uh, yeah, in verse six, for this is why the gospel was preached even to the dead, that though judged in the flesh like men, they might live in the spirit like God. And so yeah. maybe those children were included in that preaching that happened. They were in Sheol, let's say, and Jesus showed up and said, here's the gospel and maybe raise them up. I don't know. I mean, any right. comments on that? Yeah. No, no, I think that's a legitimate way to think about it, right? That there are um, not just the Old Testament heroes that we know by name, right? Like Abraham or David or something that are to be found there, but many other people that are not named. And I don't see why children wouldn't, children who died before their time wouldn't be included in that number. Yeah, yeah. And... You mentioned, um, well, I actually want to talk about one other issue before jumping into more general, the character of God and, and about hell, because I do want yeah. to cover that. But uh, speaking of human dignity, the issue of slavery often gets brought up um, sure. in conversations like, well, the Bible doesn't really condemn slavery. And in fact, sometimes it seems that it encourages it or at least permits it. And so this is from Leviticus 25, 44 through 45, um, God speaking to the Israelites. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are round about you. And then later on it says, they may be your property. Uh, so <laughs> what is going on with the issue of slavery? And obviously the church, the Catholic church is against slavery. Right. And so how does that jive with this and now our our understanding of slavery being wrong. Yeah. So slavery is wrong uh, because one person can't own another person, right? That doesn't exist, right? That's not real. Um, uh, 
uh, a person cannot be property of another person, right? Every person is, uh, enjoys uh, human dignity, right? And uh, that means that uh, slavery is a kind of affront to human dignity and to this uh, idea that we're all equal in God's sight. Um, so in the Old Testament, right, it's important to remember that what we're looking at with the ancient Hebrew people and even in their law, right, we're seeing um, them emerging from the kind of wider ancient Near Eastern culture, which took slavery for granted. It was just sort of like something that was part of every culture uh, in the ancient Near East. And, uh, and yet what the Bible does with slavery is a little bit different, right? So while it permits it to exist, uh, it actually places limits on slavery. So for example, it allows slaves to marry free persons and it uh, places limits on how a slave can be punished. Hmm. Uh, it even says, right, if uh, a runaway slave comes and like hides in your house, you're not supposed to give him back to his master, right? So there's a way in which like, it's not, it's not pointing the double barreled shotgun of the Old Testament law right at the slavery question, but it's sort of placing a limit over here and another limit over there and another limit over there. And the slaves are actually incorporated into the worship of, uh, of, of ancient Israel, right? That they're supposed to enjoy the Sabbath and this sort of thing. It might be worth commenting also that slavery in the ancient world uh, appeared in a lot of different contexts. Um, and I think, you know, whenever we hear the word slavery, we think of the antebellum South in the United States and racial slavery and like the horrors of the slave trade and, uh, you know, slave raiders going into Africa and getting people and then hauling them to the United States and this sort of thing. And in the ancient world, slavery had a lot of different dimensions. A lot of people became slaves because they were first prisoners of war. Um, you know, so they get, you know, their people gets conquered. They become a slave of the, uh, the conquerors, you know, and then a, a lot of other people would be sold into slavery by their family or they would sell themselves into slavery to pay their debts, maybe even for a period of time. Um, so there's a lot of transactions going on in the ancient world, whether it be in the ancient Near East or in the Greco-Roman world that are really different from more modern experiences of slavery. Mm. Um, and you had different ranks of slaves uh, in the ancient world, right? So for example, you had like the, like the worst thing that could happen is you got enslaved as like a, a, a miner in the salt mines, right? Or as um, a, a rower on one of these ancient tri-rings of the Greeks, right? And you would be chained to your oar and you would die, you know, uh, you know, rowing the boats, you know? These are kind of like the worst, horrible, most horrible forms of slavery for prisoners of war and this sort of thing. But there were lots of other forms of slavery where we would regard them more like on the level of employment, okay? So, uh, a lot of slaves were what we would call household slaves. So they were cooks, maids, butlers, or whatever, right? People who operated the household uh, in uh, ancient Israel and in other cultures. But a lot of slaves were agricultural laborers, right? So they would be, you know, uh, essentially doing their work and subsisting on, you know, whatever portion of grain or, uh, or uh, agricultural goods that they were allowed to, to take. Uh, so slavery had a really different social location uh, in the ancient world mm. than it did in relatively modern times. And I think that that complexity is just worth acknowledging. So, so some translators, for example, in the ESV New Testament, 
have even adopted the term bondservant uh, to translate the term typically rendered as slave. Um, and I think that that might be helpful at indicating that um, uh, slavery in the Greco-Roman world is very different than slavery uh, in our time. Yeah. And what about the New Testament, though? Um, not explicitly condemning slavery. I mean, we have the book of yeah. Philemon, which, you know, Paul does treat him as a brother, the slave. And so, right. but how did, how did the New Testament deal with this? And why, why not more explicitly, you think? Yeah, so again, you know, slavery was part of the social fabric of the Greco-Roman world. Mm. And uh, so St. Paul, while he does challenge the standing order, right, and proposes the gospel as an alternative to imperial ideology, he doesn't directly attack the institution of slavery, but I would say that he indirectly attacks it, right? So I think we see that most clearly in the book of Philemon, uh, where he's basically writing a letter to the slave master of a runaway slave saying, you know, you ought to take your slave back, but not really as a slave anymore, as a brother. Uh, and this is a not so subtle hint, right, that there's a real moral problem with slavery and that in Christ, right, there's neither slave nor free, right? He describes for us, I think it's in Ephesians uh, 2, right? It's like in Christ, everybody's on the same level. There's a kind of a level playing field for mm. all of us uh, and that at church anyway, there are no slaves. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, there might be a way of translating that to, I mean, sometimes I wonder if, if the translation of slave in the new Testament might be better rendered as employee. Right. Mm. So like in Christ, there are no bosses and employees, but all are one, you know? And I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about it. That in the end, um, there's no kind of like social gradation in heaven, right? We're all just before God with nothing, you know, you can't take it with you. And I think that Paul wants to emphasize that. Uh, and I think that his theology eventually does lead to a total breakdown of uh, the Roman slavery system, but you know, it's going to be replaced by other things like serfdom and eventually employment, you know, and I think that we kid ourselves if we think that, in our own uh, economic situation and culture, people don't have, um, uh, you know, obligations which they're forced to work to fulfill. All you have to think about are um, student loans, for example, or um, the MasterCard, right? Yeah. Which uh, can quickly become your master. So the idea of like debt slavery, which to us sounds so abhorrent. In fact, a lot of us find ourselves in a form of debt slavery, just like the ancients. We just have different terms for talking about the same thing. It's interesting as you're talking, it seems like, you know, Jesus' parables coming to mind, like the sower sowing the seed. And it, and it starts out as a mustard seed, let's say a small, small seed, but then it grows into a large tree. And so it's like, yeah, all the things are there to basically deconstruct slavery. Um, even in the Old Testament, like you see these limits that are put on, but God knows he needs to work with what he has, I guess, work in time and like gradually perform this miracle. Um, yeah. It's almost like the miracle that Jesus performed where the guy saw a little bit, but he didn't see fully. And then Jesus puts his hands on him again. And so it's like this gradation of healing that's taking place and, and leaving us a church, uh, not just a Bible, but a church 
that can help us in in seeing these developments take place and seeing how these connections can lead to ultimate liberation in the end. Um, it's pretty pretty interesting to see how God works though over time, even though He's timeless Himself. Um, um, maybe it'd be helpful. There's uh, if I could read one paragraph from the book. Yes, from my book about about slavery. It says the old law does not explicitly approve or disapprove of slavery, but it does limit its severity. Slaves could marry free persons. Slaves were to be circumcised and participate in the household worship. For example, they could not be forced to work on the Sabbath. While they are categorized as property, they could also own property. Sometimes slaves could even own slaves. Unlike other ancient law codes, biblical law provides for the punishment of a master who murders his own slave. Indeed, if a slave owner even knocked out a slave's tooth, he was required to set him free. Sometimes slaves were able to raise enough money to purchase their freedom. Surprisingly, if a free person found a fugitive slave seeking asylum, he was forbidden to hand him over to his master. Hebrew slaves were supposed to be released in the periodic Jubilee year. These examples demonstrate that the Mosaic law restricted the extent and harshness of slavery, even providing slaves with access to justice and means of worship. While the laws still envision slavery as part of the warp and woof of society, they are notably less harsh than other ancient law codes with regard to slaves. So, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, those, those little features of Old Testament law kind of help us see like, okay, so, so instead of directly forbidding, outlawing, or, or whatever slavery, the Old Testament is actually kind of limiting its severity, limiting its application, and essentially deconstructing it in a legal manner where it will eventually collapse. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And I love that you point that out. And it's also also very important to keep in mind, like you were saying, how it is different than, you know, the 1800s were in America. Sure. And just the dynamics and more like an employee-boss relationship in a lot of ways. Um, very, very important. And, and so, you know, this is an interesting thing uh, when we come to the character of God. So we've gone through, like, these tough passages of God ordering the killing of children, um, you know, the slavery, but I think you've handled those so well. Uh, but a lot of times people do have this perception that there are two different gods. Mm. And this is an ancient heresy, the Marcionism, right? That there's the God of the old Testament, but then there's the God of the new Testament, Jesus. Right. And so how, and you reflected on this a little bit, but how does the mercy and justice of God coincide and like how does the new testament and the old testament work together and how can we see that it's not two different gods it's the same god and i i personally haven't really struggled with that because i see a lot of you know justice and wrath in jesus when he overturns tables for instance yeah um and i see a lot of mercy in the old testament for instance the book of hosea when he is yearning for israel to come back to him so but how would you deal with that um, dichotomy, false dichotomy, really. Yeah, I mean, I think there are maybe two ways of solving this problem. One has to do with time and eternity, and the other has to do with thinking about what Jesus actually thought. Maybe we'll start with the first one. Um, in the Old Testament, we often see retribution in this life, right? Where 
where somebody does something evil and then something bad happens to them or somebody does something good and they're rewarded in this life with prosperity, like Joseph, you know, rising to be, you know, the vizier of, of Egypt and this sort of thing. But there's a kind of counter narrative in the Old Testament as well, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes and Job um, and in um, the book of Wisdom, where you see people who are righteous, but like bad things happen to them or people who are really wicked and bad, but good things happen to them. And it's sort of raised as like a, um, I'm not sure about the whole retribution thing. What are we supposed to make of this? You know, what's yeah. going on? Right. In Ecclesiastes, it's very poignant. You know, it's like, Oh, this doesn't seem right. You know, that the righteous man ends up poor and destitute and the wicked man ends up rich and powerful. And what's happening there is a kind of realization that the retribution and the justice that we're hoping for doesn't always happen in this life. But in fact, we have to wait for eternity for everything to be set right. And this is why the New Testament places such an emphasis on the final judgments, right? At the final judgment, God is going to fix all of the injustices that we experience, right? He's going to tear down the mighty from their thrones. He's going to lift up the lowly, like it says in the Magnificat, right? He's going to take care of business uh, in a kind of final and complete way so that everybody walks away from the final judgment satisfied, justice has been served. And that's a kind of hopeful vision for the end of time, for the end of history, uh, where in the Old Testament, we often see retribution happening in this life. But in the New Testament, we're looking forward to the day, this eschatological day, mm-hmm. when all justice will happen in the afterlife, right? In the final judgment. So that's a real like difference between Old and New Testament. And yet there's a real continuity between the two. Mm. The other thing to think about is just Jesus, right? Like, Why would Jesus be quoting the Old Testament all of the time? Why would he be reading the Old Testament out loud, like in Luke chapter 4? Why would would Jesus be emphasizing the Old Testament so much if he didn't believe that it was valid? Like, clearly Jesus thinks the Old Testament is valid, so probably we should too. Um, It doesn't mean it doesn't need to be interpreted or, or that we don't need to study in order to understand it, but Jesus seems to think it's super important, so I kind of think we should too. Yes. Okay. Well, speaking of the final judgment, um, a lot of people get very uncomfortable with the doctrine of hell. Yeah. Uh, especially it's permanence. Yeah. Um, because you know, in, in this life we are making temporal actions, let's say we're, we're, I mean, we're, we're making an action, but it's very much limited, um, to our lifespan. So shouldn't maybe a punishment be another lifetime, let's say of punishment, but not a forever and ever and ever and so you know we believe that if you die in a state of mortal sin where you you where you sin against god with full knowledge full consent grave matter then you will spend eternity in hell a place separated from god a place of punishment how do we make sense of that and like are there other ways to interpret it so we can feel more comfortable or uh, i mean or, yeah to me I, like I think it's important to think about um, how hell, like the doctrine of hell, is a load-bearing pillar of the Christian doctrine of love. Hmm. And in fact, in Dante, right, when uh, when Dante, the character, shows up at the gates of hell, right, there's that poem over the top, right, you know, uh, what is it, woe to ye, all, all ye who enter here. Um, but in that poem, it actually says... Um, I was created 
by primal love eternal. You're thinking, what? Hell was created by love? That doesn't make any sense. What's going on there? What is Dante thinking, you know? And what's going on there is so simple, right? It's like uh, sometimes my students ask me, wait a second. If God wanted Adam and Eve to like be with him forever, then why did he put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden? And you're thinking, okay, well, this is a really simplistic way of thinking about what's going on in that scene, right? But it's so simple, right? It, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and hell are basically the same concept, right? For us to love God, we have to have the ability to reject God, to not love him. Mm. Right? So if you think of the tree of life representing our choosing for God and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, our ability to reject God, right? They choose to reject God. And the same thing is true for hell, right? If hell doesn't exist, then heaven doesn't either, right? Because we can't love. We're just robots, right? Mm. We're stuck. And I mean, I know there are all sorts of books that get published about this and all kinds of fancy arguments about Greek words and whatever else. But honestly, it comes down to freedom, right? If we are free, then we're capable of love and we're capable of hate, right? We're capable of, capable mm. of rejecting God. And hell represents that capability. If we aren't capable of rejecting God for all eternity, then we are actually forced to love him, which means we're actually not free. Wow. Okay. Well, that was easy. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the podcast. Do you have any last words as far as, you know, a lot of people sometimes get frustrated with so many different scholars have so many different interpretations or I know when I was Protestant, I, I was flustered at just, you could interpret scripture however way you wanted. So just yeah. general principles that when we're encountering the Bible, maybe, Hey, here's some good things to keep in mind and, um, and how best to interpret the Bible. I know the catechism does give us some guidelines yeah. as far I mean, as literary the rule, sense. And all the that. rule of faith, you know, I mean, mm. the church uses the term, the analogy of faith. Okay. But I think the rule of faith might be an easier way to understand it. Right. That, that what we believe as Christians is the gospel, right. And the gospel and our doctrine is enshrined in the creed, which is like the sort of structure of the catechism. Uh, and so if anything, if, if any interpretation we do uh, is out of line with the creed, with the gospel, or is out of line with charity, as St. Augustine would say, then it's not the right interpretation, right? If it doesn't further the Christian virtue of charity, then it's not the right interpretation. Um, so obviously, learning the teachings of the church, studying the catechism, right, uh, spending time with the church fathers, you know, of course, using a good study Bible and, you know, good reference sources is also very helpful. But in the end, it's not about knowledge. It's about love, right? Those two go hand in hand. And the more we know about God, the more we ought to love him. The more we love him, the more we want to know about him. And so I think, you know, as long as we're guided by the principle of charity, we're guided by the teaching of the church, you know, we're going we're gonna to end up with the right interpretation of sacred scripture. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks again. And I know you mentioned maybe a conference coming um, yeah. for the Augustine so, Institute. Yeah, so there are a couple things to mention. So my blog, if you want to learn more about what I do, is catholicbiblestudent.com. I've got you know all, links to all the things I do up there. Uh, and then on, on Saturday, October 10th, the Augustine Institute is doing a online Bible conference. It is free, uh, and you can attend. Uh, it's called Anchored. 
And we'll have speakers, including myself, but also Tim Gray, our president, Brant Petrie, uh, Michael Barber, uh, and Nina Hiraman. So it's going to be a great uh, conference, uh, Catholic Conference of Bible Scholars and Biblical Theology on a variety of topics. I'll be talking about the quest for wisdom, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and I invite you to attend and uh, take a look at that online. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, and of course, you know, pick up a copy of the ESV Catholic Edition Bible. And uh, also, I should mention that um, I've got a talk coming out uh, on CD on the topics we've been talking about today. And a light on the dark passages of Scripture. All right. It's going to be the CD of the month for the Augustine Institute for October. So hopefully you can find a copy of that either on CD or digitally. And will the conference and the CD, uh, what's the website for the Augustine Institute um, that maybe we can find the conference yeah, on? Yes, so you can so? find everything we do at our website, augustineinstitute.org. Uh, okay. And of course, formed.org is our big uh, video platform where a lot of things show up. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. G. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's great talking with you, Eric. Beloved, I'm Annabelle Mosley, author, professor of theology, and host of Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. I invite you to listen in and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. God is always with you. To a production of WCAT Radio, please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.